0: Welcome back to part two of this magnificent book the magic conveyor belt and this part is called further complexity and challenges. So over the last 50 years, supply chains have got even more complex despite all the advancements in technology, mobile platforms, etc. But one of the things is a new responsibility on companies that operate supply chains is they're expected to be environmentally friendly, limit their carbon emissions, and deliver unbelievable customer services all while being resilient. So we're going to cover this interim phase of the book, which is the jump from paper based technology, to digital based technology and mobile platforms. And then the next day, we're going to cover AI and the future and the current state of supply chains. It is a great pleasure to welcome back the world's expert straight back from China. Professor Yossi Sheffi, welcome back. Thank you very much, Aidan. I thought today we'd start with the, the jump from the paper-based, as I said, to the digital platforms. And then we'll talk about supply chains and resilience. And we'll also talk about what I said there, the increased responsibility on in organizations to be more climate-friendly, ESGI and all those kind of things. So maybe you'll take us through this stage, the jump from paper-based.
1: We're talking about the, uh, the use of technology and the development of technology that was used in uh, various stages in supply chain, manufacturing, distribution, in uh, um, you know, procurement, whatever. But it actually one can trace it maybe to the first industrial revolution. One can of course go way back to the you know early men and using tools, but let's go, let's talk about industrial revolution. The uh, the first industrial revolution, from approximately 750 to 1850, was the uh, the replacement of manual production with machines. And the the case was the uh, the looms that the Luddites were fighting against and uh, trying trying to preserve their their job. But this can be traced as the first industrialization uh, effort. The second industrial revolution was from approximately 1850 to 1950. This is development of the assembly line, uh, the telegraph, and most importantly, electricity. And um, again, there were all kind of um, you know, disruptions to work and workers were uh, suing, suing companies, disrupting the work of, uh, of companies. Companies were fighting back. It was actually in the United States. This was the birth of the union movement that got there to, um, to defend workers. The third industrial revolution, I would say 1950 to 2010. It's uh, a lot of it is the digital revolution, cell phones, wifi, clouds. Most importantly for supply chain is the containers, the containers that, uh, uh change the way freight is being moved globally the fourth industrial revolution is a uh, probably what we're living through now from 210 forward it's the widespread use of connected devices, the uh, internet of things and ai and conversational computing actually the uh the eu is defining some aspirational concept. They call it the Fifth Industrial Revolution. Um, Not sure the name is appropriate, but they talk about the future when they'll have advanced advanced tech working with human to solve problem by amplifying human creativity. In that sense, I uh, completely agree with the notion that the next most important challenge as uh, technology is getting more and more into the workplace is to Make sure that human and machine work together in a way that the machine do what they do best and the human do what they do best. And there are things that the machine cannot do, that the human can do, and vice versa. So the idea is how to best integrate them. I and I think the winning companies in supply chain and business in general will be the companies that will be able to integrate the um, those two elements in the best way.
0: Yeah, I'd love to share a couple of terms that you introduce as you go, because these were technologies that we probably didn't notice. People who aren't working in supply chains, but there was things like UPC, EDI, GPS. These were all massive changes, including RFID's, and they were game changers when it came to supply chain. We
1: forget that the uh, things that we look you know, at everyday use, you know, the use of barcode simplified. Uh, Cut down the work involved in keeping stock, and, and give huge amount of information to people who manage supply chain. Um, interesting, you talk about RFID, and this is a, a good, um, good technology to talk about because when RFID came about. People in the profession remember it. Uh, there was a notion it will change everything. It was a replacement to the barcode, and you can read without the direct line of sight. Turns out it, it's not. It, it did not. It did not, as Walmart at the time said. It changes everything. Well, no. It is now used very limited in some niche applications. Still, still used, but it's very hard to replace something that's free. And barcode is virtually free. So even at five cents, it, it, it's still costly. It's a, when you multiply it by the trillions of items moving around. So barcodes are a, very important to keeping, but, but barcodes became part of a system because you now have, because of the barcode, you now have point of sale systems. When you go to the supermarket and somebody scans, it goes automatically into the invest, inventory system of the retailer or whatever company. And it automatically triggers a reorder from the supply chain. From so it barcode, it's just it's it's just the front end of a whole system of supply chain management that's automated. And um, similarly, the, lots of other technologies are embedded in part of the system, including by the way, artificial intelligence and generative AI, uh, all of this they're being slowly but surely integrated into existing system when they can do the most good
0: i mentioned their edi and that connects to some another advance which was central information management but also then cloud computing these were also just advancements in the technology that made it much easier to manage a supply chain
1: and and of course one almost uh, goes without saying that the internet itself the the, the ability to do What we do right now to do a Zoom or whatever session with a supplier in China rather than fly to China every other Tuesday was a huge change. And the the ability to send email around and text and uh, basically for free. Uh, The price of information went down. And most importantly, when we talk about supply chain, we're really talking about three flows. We talk about the flow of goods that physically goods are moving, but to enable the flow of goods, the flow of information and flow of cash. These other two flows became instant and no cost associated with them, basically. Because moving, moving cash is, it became like moving information. It just, you know, a transaction between bank is done over the internet, at the speed of light. And information is, moving information is basically free. So... Purchase order, you know, ETAs, whatever, all the, you know, specifications of of product, all can move quickly and seamlessly between customers and suppliers. And this, of course, enables supply chain to move much, much faster. And it's what what enables now the idea that you can order something from Amazon and get it same day. Or it's it's just because everything moves so fast. The minute that you click, it gets to the um to the Amazon warehouse and a robot automatically start picking it up, moving it to the uh uh to the front, get boxed, it, you a van is a truck is already waiting that they got the alert. A software routes the uh, uh the van to your house. How else can it be done in you know in Boston it's Two, four hours, you get stuff when you order it because it is done
0: basically at the speed of light. I wanted to point out in the book, there's brilliant, brilliant studies, nuggets of history. One of them that you tell us about is FedEx and what an amazing innovator the CEO, Fred Smith, was, and how in 1978, he said, the information about the package will be as valuable as the package in the future. And he said that in 1978, foreseeing the future, Maybe you'll give us a bit of an overview of FedEx because they were unbelievable innovators and they gave way to many, many copycats that went on to be very successful and still are today. This year is the 50th anniversary of our center at MIT. And we had several uh, events
1: with potency CEOs CEO coming, speaking and all this. The first one I got is Fred Smith. And I, you can find it online. I have an interview with Fred Smith. I've known Fred for you know, many, many for decades. But um uh, I said this guy is, did not only invent a company; he invented an industry. And uh, people forget that in 19, his first the first year of operation was 1973. And they move on the first day; they move a little over 100, 120 some packages. And they now move about, you know, several millions every day, of course. But people forget that before FedEx, you wanted a package to be sent to you. You had no idea if it will arrive, when it will arrive, what's going on with it. You order a package, and sometimes it came, and sometimes it did not, and you just hope to God that it will come. Uh, there was nothing like the first slogan of FedEx was absolutely positively has to be there by 10.30 the next morning. The idea that overnight package that you can fly across a country as big as the U.S. was unheard of. The system that he uh, kind of adapted, is basically invented in, uh, in our profession, but it's basically adapted from a, from, a, from a different system. He looked at how banks are routing checks. You go to, a, when you write a check, it goes to a clearinghouse and then it goes to the bank that has to pay. So it all goes to a central point. The same thing he did with the airplane. They all go to uh, Memphis, stuff gets sorted, go to outbound plan, and goes to the destination. That's the system. And he said he got, he got the idea from banks. So um, so he's a very, very impressive person. And the idea of tracking and tracing, as he said, and before we even knew, before the internet, he said the information is as important as, as the package. He kind of understood what the consumer needs, which was amazing. And, of course, the mark of success is the, the, everybody followed him. <laughs> UPS and DHL and all, of, all the postal service every, they own rigid their system and, and bought airplane and started started competing with him and the, the biggest competitor in the US is of course UPS this was just a trucking company and then they changed they changed the system and they started doing doing the same thing so it's a uh, to me it was Befitting to have uh, Fred, who's by the way, honestly a wonderful gentleman and, and personally a
0: very impressive guy. I love hearing that when the, when such an innovator is a, a great person like that as well. And I'll link to that. I'll, I'll I'll get that link off you and I'll share it in the show notes so people can find it. And with you talking to Fred. Yeah, it's it's, it's on my site somewhere. Brilliant. I'll do that. I'll, I'll link to that, uh, Yossi. So I, I thought there was a couple of things. I wanted to just a few threads I wanted to pull out because w- within there, there was many, many aspects that reflect innovation. And one of them was the evolution of organizations themselves or the way business was was done. And I wanted to highlight something you point out in the companies here, you say, it is or was the growing role of financial criteria in corporate decision making. Before the 1970s, only 16% of the chief executive offers in S&P 500 companies had compensation based on financial metrics such as earnings per share, stock prices, and return on equity. By the 1990s, however, 47% did, and by 2016, the vast majority did. This financialization of business encouraged cost-cutting via offshore outsourcing. Reducing the costs of purchased materials, parts and services has an immediate and measurable impact on any business. Such short-term tangible savings hit the bottom line quickly, unlike long-term intangible improvements in other systemic properties such as resilience. I thought that was such a key point that might be overlooked within the book, but also one that affects innovation so much, this idea of financialization. Maybe you'll share a little bit about this.
1: Yeah, the, uh, in some sense, I I lament this. I mean, it's uh, the fact that they, uh, but it's also something, in, in some sense, unavoidable. Uh, the ten, the average tenure of a CEO is three, four years. And they, so, you know, they have their, their own metrics. And the metrics are based, as you say, on the all financial metrics. So, and furthermore, Wall Street is a very short-term animal. And uh, Wall Street does not look at the uh, at the long term. They look at the next quarter, the next quarter. So this is something that you can do in short in short term. And, do, and the results are showing up immediately. It's cost cutting, and look. And the cost cutting is I'm always amazed. You buy in a U.S. you know department store. You go and buy a package of t-shirts. I don't know. You buy six t-shirts. For like $8. Okay, so each T-shirt costs about a little over a dollar. How much is the guy who's making it made? I mean, two three cents? I mean, So people are, it, it's all, it, it goes beyond that. People are living on really starving wages or, or very close to, you know, slave labor and do these things, whether it's Sri Lanka or Bangladesh, and we saw all these things that are happening there it's all driven to me by the same uh pressure in some sense nobody's a bad guy nobody's trying to make sure that people live in you know in misery somewhere around the world but they're driven to do it by the system so it's the system that has to change and uh, because it's it's very hard for people to work against their own interests so these are these are the uh Stimulus that are being being presented. This is what people people respond to. So yes, this brought uh, a lot of the things that uh, that we are worried about. A lot of the uh, when we see Chinese make, made made goods, Malaya, uh, you know, Sri Lanka made goods, uh, other people. I have to I have to visit their, these places and I have to look at the working conditions. And I, I should say there are companies that do it. There are actually uh, ethical companies that do it. And in one of my previous books, when I wrote about uh, sustainability, I wrote about Patagonia. I wrote about other companies that actually, for example, in Patagonia, every time they do a supplier agreement. The head of sustainability, which also head of social, uh, social and environmental sustainability, has a veto power because they go and visit, and if they see something that's not... they have a veto power against the wishes of the of of the procurement people, of the finance people. Doesn't matter. So they actually put some teeth into this. It's not just a lot of companies talk a good game, but uh, I, I try to highlight some companies that actually. Perform but, and, uh, do, and, and do well. Yet, I must admit that the product is more expensive. Uh, it's, it's, they, they are very ethical companies. The product is more expensive. Now, it's a better quality, it lasts longer, so you can, you know, and they had the following. But the following is small. They're still a, a $600 million company. They're never going to be a, you know, huge, multi billion dollar company because they had a a set of followers are committed to them, uh, but it's not the great unwashed. It's not, it's, the, a great it's point. not everybody.
0: The chairman of Patagonia is a great friend of the show. A guy called Charles Kahn, magnificent guy oh. who upholds all those values of the company as well. Yes, he does. But let, let's, let's talk about that. Cause you mentioned, I'm going to jump ahead because in my notes, I mentioned the horse meat scandal, for example, because you do say this, that even if an organization wants to be ethical and wants to do the right thing, sometimes because of a lack of resilience, and we'll explain that term later on in their supply chain, or just not knowing the complexity of the supply chain, they don't know. And even some companies, as you said, during the scandals, like, for example, in India, when many people died in a, in a factory that literally crumbled while they were in it, Many organizations said, "Yeah, well, we weren't part of that." And then they discovered they actually were through middlemen, etc. And this is the problem with the complexity of a supply chain.
1: It was in Bangladesh, not in uh, not in India. But uh, okay, um, yeah. The, the 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 issue is that over time, the structure of supply chain changed. Ford Motor Company, at its uh, um, at beginning in the early 1900s, had the River Rouge plant. They had one plant that made everything. It was totally, you know, vertically integrated. They grew the, the wood that was in the car. They had their own forest. They had their own coal mines. They, they Totally. But everything changed completely when companies started going to the best in class. So why should I grow my own uh, wood if there are people who are very good at growing wood or people who are very good at, uh, you know, Supplying power. Why, why should I supply my own power? I can buy it from the electric company. That's their business and they're good at it. True. But what happened because of this is that they started the tiered structure of supply chain. So company, let's say a car. So uh, General Motors assembles the car, but they don't make uh, seats for a car. There's Johnson Control that makes seats on the car. Johnson Control makes seats. So they buy the seeds from Johnson Control. Johnson Control buy cloth for the seat from some textile manufacturer. The textile manufacturer don't grow their own cotton. They buy cotton. So have tiers of, of manufacturing. Everybody has a set of suppliers. So companies, they usually know the tier one supplier. This is the company that directly buy from. But the problem is that those companies have their own supply chain of, of sub-supplier, and sub-supplier of sub-sub-supplier and it's very and, and companies don't reveal. So a tier one company would not tell the um, the original equipment manufacturer who their suppliers are. It's a trade secret and uh, it's competitive advantage. They're afraid they'll go around them maybe, but they they, they just don't. Tell. So people just don't know. And when, uh, as, as you mentioned, when there was the um, the disaster in Bangladesh when the uh, um, the uh, factory crumbled, and more than a thousand, mostly women, died. Uh, they were working in really horrible conditions. Companies thought that they were not there. They said, "We we never buy from this company." But what happened is they buy from another company, who buys from another company, who buy from that company. So they are they found out they are uh, they were involved. It only came to light because of the disaster. Um, so a lot this happening. All the time, companies find out uh, only when there's a problem <laughs> that, they, that they are actually subject to, uh, uh, they actually depend on, on somebody deep, deep in their supply chain. So the structure that, um, masks the visibility. Companies just don't know. They are effort to try to do it, but it's a, uh, the effort are going against the basic tenant of, uh, Everybody in the supply chain looks after their own interest. So they serve the customer, but they're not going to tell the customer what's going on behind door number three, so to say. What's, until people will start thinking that, uh, because and the reason is, part of the reason is as follows. General Motors may have several suppliers, let's say, of seats. May. Uh, just as an example. So the supplier of seed doesn't want to tell GM how it does it, how it buys everything, because the information may seep into its its own competitors. So nobody wants to open the kimono, and and understandable. So it's uh, so people just don't know. This is something that technology cannot solve, because it's an issue of uh, how people manage their business.
0: I I love to come back to one of the things you taught me through the book, which was Apple and how for a product launch, for example, because nobody wants to get caught not having supply, they that Apple go ahead as a competitive advantage and buy up lots and lots of travel space. So be able to uh, be able to bring phones over and be able to have them ready for the launch. So they're not not advertising to nobody for example for example, maybe we'll share that, and then I might come back to the meat scandal because it was originated here in Ireland as well in 2013 Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, but uh, Apple just to, to make sure that the phones are, are on time, several years it simply contracted out all the air, um, all the airline capacity from China to the u s. Just all of it for about three weeks. Only Apple. And they did it ahead of time. They knew when they're gonna launch it. Nobody else knew and suddenly people could not fly their stuff. There was just no capacity. Because the, the number of phones were in the millions and they used to they wanted everything to hit at once. And uh, so it's amazing. But anyway, let's go back to the you want to go to the horsemeat scandal. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Not really, but we better <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but the horse meat scandal is an example that people just did not know. People didn't know, and the interesting thing that there are several of them. But in Romania, for example, horse meat is totally acceptable. It's something that people eat, and it goes from uh, from Romania It went to Cyprus and several other places in, in my book. I don't remember it now. I, I, the seven seven station before it gets to the to the supermarket. Somewhere along the line, somebody just changed the label. That's all. They changed the label from horse meat to beef. Where it happens, until now, it's not clear. But somewhere along the line, somebody changed it and nobody was the wiser. So, so it got to IKEA meatball when suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, actually horse meatball and uh, <laughs> lots of others. Uh, IKEA, yeah. you know, threw everything out and it started doing DNA testing.
0: That's what people, are, a lot of people are doing DNA testing now. Because you mentioned IKEA there, you say to, re- to enforce requirements such as environmental standards, IKEA hired 80 full-time auditors who do nothing but audit suppliers and sub-suppliers. And you, you, can see why, you can see why that's difficult for a company to invest in that.
1: Not only this, the amazing thing, they have a company who audit the auditors. To make look, because auditors are subject to a lot of bribery, so uh, so they have a company that audit the auditors, just to make sure that everything is on the up and up. But as you say, they they invest. It's uh, now just to be sure. IKEA was caught several times in doing unsavory things. They were using German slave labor. Uh Yeah, at one point, years ago, they were they were cutting. Cutting forest in some uh, environmentally sensitive area, but they clean direct for sure. Good for them. They absolutely clean direct. So, uh, and they are very serious about uh, sustainability and social responsibility.
0: Yeah, but but you can see you can see if somebody's gone through a tough time, these are the things that they cut. So you know, and and through reading the book, you kind of go, boy, it's it's tough to make a book out there. You can see why there's pressure on suppliers et cetera, as well to lower their prices as well i thought we might jump to something that you talk throughout the book and we won't get through it all but this is where you were saying for example in the last session you were saying to me you know you think buying local is a good thing it not always is the case and you say here that governments directly modulate supply chains costs by levying trade tariffs with several objectives to aid local industries, to offset alleged unfair advantages or subsidies of foreign trading partners, or to retaliate against the other country's tariffs. I thought this was so interesting. And just to show how difficult it is.
1: We're going into political realm, unfortunately, but uh, most companies do it because of uh, internal uh, populist notions. So during the Trump administration, they put a lot of tariffs and they say we are against the Chinese... Any economist will tell you that the tariff are paid by the U.S. consumers because the price go up and the tariff – that's what happens. So you're punishing your own consumers. But it, it sounds good. I'm rah-rah-rah for, for the United States. I now punish the Chinese. Or punish, God, for sake, we punish the Canadians. I mean, Canada. I mean, we put tariff on Canadian in the import because of security concern. It's uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, Trudeau, went on television and started laughing. He said, Canada is a security concern for the United States. What are you talking about? But it was rah, rah, rah. We're doing the things. And the same is happening uh, uh, everywhere. And it uh, distorts, of course, supply. distort the decision. Decisions are not done on what's most economical, but most economical given the tax the, uh, the structure on, on the structure of all these hurdles that are put in the way of uh, international
0: uh, trade. Maybe at a high level, you might share there's a couple of terms there that were really useful. One was regulatory arbitrage, and the other was to understand what an FTZ is and why, benefit, why it's so beneficial. And maybe there, through that lens, we can see, well, this was the issue with Brexit versus the EU
1: is a free trade zone. That's uh, the idea is as follows: a country. That's even taxes. Before even we have all kind of other duties and, uh, and tariffs. Every country has taxes and, and tariffs just in the, in the normal flow, flow of business. So, for example, if you go into Singapore, uh, turns out that about ninety-five percent of the stuff that come to Singapore port never gets into the country. It just, it it goes onto another ship that goes outbound. And from the 5% that stay, most of it comes as chips and comes in as chips and lives as com- inside computers. So very little is actually stays in, in Singapore. It's basically a transshipment uh, area. So it would have, it would have lost its, uh, you know, position as a transshipment area if you had to pay every time you come into the port. You have to pay taxes and tariffs and uh, customs. So they have a free trade zone. And what happens is stuff comes into the free trade zone. Some work is done on it, but the value that comes out. So you pay only on the increased value. So if, uh, if stuff comes out and, and lives on, on another ship, nothing you know it's just in the free trade zone nothing but even if people can put a, a manufacturing plant inside the free trade zone and chip comes in and the computer comes out in with a chip in it you don't pay on, on the chip port of the uh, of the computer so this is how a uh, free trade zone work and and but every country has them all over the place because they try to make sure that um to try not to impede the flow of commerce. The idea was not to impede the flow of commerce and to let people come in and out when relevant. There's no need to pay the tax when something comes in and leaves right away. So usually you have six months of time before uh, before it leaves, and uh, and then you don't pay tax on it. You don't pay
0: any customs duties, tax, nothing. Will we mention Brexit? Because you you kind of allude to Brexit during. Will I bother? Brexit, Brexit. <laughs> Look, you know what is an
1: unforced error in tennis? That's <laughs> Brexit. It's an unforced error. <laughs> but again, it's part of all the you know, populist agenda and all this, we don't want the um, Polish drivers, we don't, and we hate the EU and Brussels. Whoa, and now we're a different country, now we have to pay duties coming to the US, uh, now now we've we got between Ireland and the US, oh, there's a border between them, how we deal with this? Nobody thought, well, I must say, the economists have been warning about it during the campaign, but they were drowned. They were drowned by the populist uh, notion, we'll take our, you know, We'll take our country back. The same thing as make America great again. It, it's the same the same type of thing. Um, you, you do things that sound good, but actually hurtful. And the unfortunate thing, to go about Brexit or some some other country, it hurts the people who are voting for it. It's the, <laughs> it's the people at the lowest part of the population, you know, economically. Mostly these are people who vote for it. And these are people who suffer from it. So it's a, it's an unforced error.
0: <laughs> it's a great, it's a great description for exactly what it is. I, so let, let's move on to um, the climate aspect, because I, I, I love the way the book builds and it kind of gives you a little bit of history and then it kind of goes, look how, even though it's getting easier and yes, you can get your product from Amazon in two hours, depending on where you are, but look what has to go on behind the scenes, including, as I mentioned in the introduction. Climate aspect, so having to think about the environment, all those kind of things. Couple of examples you give, so where we wouldn't see as consumers the impact of climate change, you share that in Texas, for example, cotton growers had to abandon some of their of their produce, a lot of their produce, and then, for example, with the Rhine Basin drying up, many many ships have been affected, cargo has been affected, and as a result, they have to go then on trucks, and trucks emit much more carbon than a ship does. <laughs> of course, much more. By the way, we see now the same thing, the Panama Canal,
1: the water is down. And uh, so what happens? Ships cannot. Ships have to take a light load, so they can do only half to two-thirds of the load, which means many more ships for the same volume. So guess what? It's, again, more carbon into the air. Um, so we live in a vicious cycle. Because, because of uh, because of global warming, we have all these phenomena that actually ended up creating even more carbon in, into the atmosphere. So it's, uh, but honestly, the most problematic thing, uh, problematic or not, it's, uh, it's the fact that consumers are still uh, not willing to pay for it. By and large, good talk. Everybody is talking, you know, um, talking the right sentences but actually performing is an entirely different thing and of course i live in the united states and the you know the european union is trying to do something about it try to get the carbon tax which actually carbon tax i must say is the most efficient way to do something about it because it aligns economics economic decision with the with sustainability decision so but then people in the, in the eu industry raise uh, raise the alarm that Chinese, American, other producers will be a lot more efficient because they don't have to pay. It. So they did the border border adjustment. The United States will never agree to it. Never. The Congress already said this is the only thing unified Democrats and Republicans. They are not going to go. They're not going to be part of it. The Chinese are not going to be part of it. So what happened? We we'll start going into a more... We'll see what happens. I, I, I must say, but it's not clear that the EU, as big as it is, can withstand China and the US together. You know, having having a decision not to participate and and start, try to put the, all kind of levies on on European stuff.
0: Even from a, a consumer perspective, it's a privilege to be able to buy organic or better quality food, et cetera. It's like some people just can't afford it. It's like, I can't afford that, or it doesn't even come into my consciousness because I'm I'm barely meeting my bills. So there's, there's this real dilemma that goes on there for individuals as well.
1: The dilemma, my guess is the dilemma will uh, encourage more populist notion. Why? Because the people who preach that you should do it and you should consume less and fly less and drive less and eat less, God knows what, and then buy less, are not the people at the bottom of the pyramid? It's the elite who are, who are saying this, and so they're again lecturing to the people of the bottom of the pyramid. If you look at the some very serious um, polls and interviews done with people who voted for Trump, these are mostly people at the lowest part of the uh, of the economic pyramid, and they were just mad at people telling them what to do. They just tell that the elite is looking down at them. So you should do this. While, by the way, I must admit, Al Gore and it uh, are flying in private jets. So it's, <laughs> you know, there's a, you know, John Kerry, the the the, the U.S. climate czar, he's flying all over the world with private jets. Give me a break. Come on. It is the, the most inefficient way of travel, sustainability. It's efficient from time point of view, not from cost, but from time point of view, the most efficient. But.
0: I always think of that, as yes, driving down what you're recycling in an SUV or a Hummer, <laughs> <laughs> not an electric one. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> this, exactly. It's a do what I say, don't,
1: don't do what I do. And so also it, a
0: challenge of privilege. I mean, from from your position of privilege, you do not know what it's like to be barely making your bills. So
1: you don't even try to find out. It's a, <laughs> you, you live in your own world. It's, it's, it's like all the... Movie stars that are proclaiming to be, you know, and they're all driving it. They're all flying in private jets, but right? they're all claiming, talking about sustainability, environment, and social responsibility, and all this while flying in private jets. So come on, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to preach this way if you don't live and behave this way. And, and actually, you create even more resentment.
0: And like you say, with the scandal in Tazreen in Bangladesh walmart for example didn't know they were using the using these things and in a way there's probably a little bit of ignorance as well from from people who are preaching it they don't realize well what you're doing there is actually affecting over there because it's so complex and i use that as a kind of a bridge to the term vuca and you mentioned this in the intro you mentioned it in this section of the book part two and i'd love to apply the term vuca to a supply chain mainly Talking about volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, and and how those things play out.
1: Well, the term VUCA was a uh, was actually a military term. It, it started in the uh, in the US military, described the the um, battle battlefield of the future. You know, and and by the way, we see it now in Ukraine. That suddenly there are drones and, and, and jamming and all kind of other things are, are are happening. It becomes very very volatile and hard to follow and what's what's going on. Yet on the ground, of course, one has to make uh, to uh, to make decision. But as I write in the book, VUCA could have been a term invented for supply chains because you are working all over the globe subject to weather, subject to geopolitical constraints, subject to people's whims, some sub- and these are changing and volatile and, and so the term VUCA is very, very apt to describe today's supply chains. So that's why that's why I mentioned it in the
0: in the book. We mentioned earlier on the financialization and how the financialization made CEOs or leaders of organizations offshore because it was cheaper. And now we're seeing reshoring or near-shoring as well. These are new terms as well that many people wouldn't have heard. And many have happened since the pandemic when people saw what a VUCA world we lived in. And they decided, actually, we need to have these products or these suppliers closer, or we need to be your own suppliers. Maybe there was some value in the Rose Rouge effect. And maybe you'll share a bit about near-shoring and reshoring.
1: Okay, so... Unfortunately, I'm a little cynical about it um, it's a uh, when everything is said and done, there's a lot more said than done it's a uh, uh, people are talking about um when we talk about reshoring it's basically a code word for moving out of China by and large, but it's very hard to move out of China. Companies spend decades and billions of dollars in building whole supply chain supply and their supply and their supply and getting the better and better and better and they're very good. So some companies are just moving the final uh, the final production uh, step like assembly to let's say Vietnam. The entire supply chain is still back in China but they now put a label made in Vietnam so they can uh, they can pacify some of the you know politicians. That's one thing. Another thing is there's a dearth of um, resources and talent. At the end of the day, uh if we are not going to start opening minds and we are and in the United States we are not and in Europe we are not because we worry about it uh, you know environmental issues, then most of the material is going to stay come from China. So what does it matter if you do if you build now the transmission in the United States? But the material, the EV, whatever. But the material for the battery is still coming from China. They can still stop you. It doesn't matter that you do a lot of things. So it's a. Some of it is moving. It's a lot smaller than what you might read in the you know in the newspaper. Companies are still. I'm working with companies. Not mention names, but working in a lot of companies with extensive supply chains. By and large, they're not getting out of China. They're not getting out of uh, you know international uh, or global global supply chain. Cost and the uh, service is still paramount. Now, they do something. So, of course, I don't. You know, they they pressure that first of all themselves and they. Uh, Tier 1 suppliers, the one that they are buying from, eh, they are pressuring them and they have to submit, they have to measure and submit reports about their, about their own sustainability effort. They are much more um, concerned about resilience, about the ability to withstand shocks. Uh, this actually, most companies start, started being serious about it after the um, Japan disaster. And the, um, you know, tsunami and radioactive uh, stuff. And even before that, about the New Orleans flooding. In the United States, this was a pivotal event. Uh, People realized that, uh, first of all, they they cannot depend on the government. The government really should know that they have to to develop their own processes. And they did. Um, After Japan, uh, most companies have now Lots of plans, and they exercise the plan and they drill them in order to withstand all kind of uh, of disruption. I'm, I'm talking in even I don't remember there is all my book I don't remember this book that we are talking about about um, BSF the chemical giant. They had they had a plan for pandemic. They actually had a plan, what to do in case of a Now, it, it never works exactly like like the plan, but they had a plan. They could do what they do. Okay, we work from home. We start doing And they immediately put the plan into action. So companies are getting better at, at being prepared and saying, who is doing what in case of X or Y. So, um, but again, this requires investments, investments in putting up Emergency operation center, emer- uh, investment in uh, even good drills cost a lot of money. They disrupt disrupt the operation. They cost a lot of money. You go people through a Chinese fire drill. Uh, all of, all of these things or develop systems that uh, that can be that can work in case of a cyber attack. Develop system that can that can withstand it.
0: It all costs money. So. You do it to an extent that you do it, but no more. You mentioned one of the tools, Resilient, which is an AI tool that even monitors what's going on in this in social media and it it can catch things ahead of time. And again, it's a typical story of innovation. Somebody who was working in the company decided to spin out and create it and then sell it back to the company. Yes,
1: this is a is a former student of mine. That's why I know. I've been with the company. The company is called Resilient, and um, the, uh, uh, the student, Bindia, Bindia Beckel, used to work at the, at the company and uh, used to look at how they do risk management, resilience, and they said it must be a better way. So we, she left to start the company. And the company, what the company does is very interesting because you can get reports, there are several reports um, Services, they're reporting about disruptions all over the place. There's a fire somewhere, there's a flood somewhere, there's a strike somewhere. They mapped, they, when they have a client, they map all the client's facilities and their suppliers as much as they can. And they have this map. And the minute there's an alert, they know, okay, your plant in northern Italy, uh, a supplier in northern Italy has a problem for the next three, four weeks. But that's only the beginning. They apply, they, they tie it to the bill of material. So they know what this supplier is making. They know which product this part of the supplier gives them goes into, and they know which customers are using this product. So they can tell the customer, look, first of all, alert the customer. We have a problem immediately. Then they can, knowing the problem, they can immediately start looking for other suppliers. So, and uh, the reason that it works so well, it works very well is they go industry by industry. And the, the beauty of this is you look at, let's say, Ford and General Motors, 90% of the suppliers are the same suppliers. So once you model a supplier of General Motors, now you got Ford, there's no more work. You have the supplier already in your system. So they've been uh, very successful.
0: Brilliant, it's a brilliant story.
1: They just sort of private equity, and then you say the former company is one of the clients. <laughs>
0: always the way man the innovator leaves. But I, I thought we'd share one more story, which is really interesting. It's linked to VUCA. And because we talked about resilient there, and, and the, it's so difficult to get an idea of what's going on. And this is the a of VUCA, which is ambiguity. There was a great story you tell here, which is basically the bullwhip effect. And this is the story of there was one with PNG and diapers. And then there was the other one with Volvo and green cars, which was hilarious. Uh,
1: this is the story of people
0: not communicating so uh, there was this is
1: by the way at one point it even made the uh, the Economist the, the 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 story of the green car volvo was making you know volvo found out that people are not make are not don't like green cars they don't like green volvos why i don't know but green volvos are not selling so the salespeople were started to discount the green cars the manufacturing people, so they started selling. The manufacturing people look, oh, my God, green cars are moving. Make more green cars and more green cars. It's a lack of, a lack of visibility and lack of communication even within the company. So uh, uh, the bullying effect is that uh, P&G uh, found out that if you look at about diapers, the consumption of diapers is fixed throughout the year. There's no babies just need so many diapers, and it it grows with the population growth. That's it. Uh, diapers are it's not something that uh, that is uh, seasonal or uh, babies you know need diapers at the constant rate all the time. So there were why is this? Sometimes the price goes. Sometimes they, there's a huge demand for diapers. Sometimes no, no demand for diapers. So they start investigating. They find they find out that the um, the retailers are actually sometimes run run a promotion on diapers, so the diapers go up. This, of course, kills the manufacturing process because instead of manufacturing on a on a, a fixed rate, they have to you know respond and they, they, they overstock and understock all the time. Their result was they're working with Walmart to try to um, absorb some of the uh, uh, highs and lows and try to uh, try to mitigate it but from this came a whole literature about the bullwhip effect the bullwhip effect is exactly so what happened with the bullwhip effect let's say a retailer buys sells 200 uh, items a week and then for some reason something happened and it sold you know 400 a week now the supplier to this retailer sees suddenly a spike of 400. He has inventory only for giving 200, a week. So now he says, okay, I'm give, I, I have to give them my entire inventory because I had, let's say 200 and 200 in inventory, 200 to give them and 200 just in case. So I give them 400, but now I need to have 400 and I have to have 400 in inventory to keep the same thing. So now I'm ordering 800 from my supplier. And this supplier now orders 1600 from his supply. So it, it started going up and then it started going down. This happened during the pandemic. We saw it. There was a, for example, the shortage of chips. By the way, I wrote a year and a half ago, said the shortage of chips will become too many chips in the, uh, in the market. Because what happened is the shortage of chips, so price goes up and the, the manufacturer started uh, start to make more, we'll get to a point. And right now we have it. In certain chips, we have a lot of chips. And we will have more because people are actually building plants. So it's uh, it goes up and down the channel. It, 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 it takes time, of course. It doesn't, it doesn't happen right away. But there are actually, uh, even in macroeconomics uh, statistics, you can see them. The, the, the fact that you give retailer price may go down by 10, 12 percent and certain uh, and their supplier um, orders will go down by 20 percent and the supplier supplier will go down by 30 40 percent and then it will reverse itself. so but once you realize this, it's not it's not a surprise. that's why I knew I, I wrote about it and he how did you know I said, how did I know I mean
0: <laughs> because it happened you know a hundred times in every industry before it's funny when after the pandemic after covid 19 there was a lot of of hand sanitizer and masks in shops (laughs) they couldn't get rid of it (laughs) exactly exactly so there's a shortage of that then then, then there's a a surplus and one other place you said you see it is when during the pandemic organizations let go of loads of people and then they couldn't hire them back again afterwards
1: Exactly, exactly, especially in the United States, when there's very little protection and all of this, so people just get rid of people. And now there's a shortage of people. Surprise, surprise.
0: <laughs> uh, all I can say is you got to read Yossi's book. It's absolutely great. I, I have a final quote that I just wanted to share because it really encapsulates this episode, part two, in a whack-a-mole world where pandemics, nationalistic trade policies and local disasters hit different locations at different times impeding the production flow or consumption of goods. No single source location can be safe. Instead, a multi shore network of locations provides local presence to serve local customers and appease local governments, as well as resilience to manage risks or disruptions to capacity. Brilliant stuff. And it's a brilliant book. I highly, highly recommend it. It's so mind opening for pretty people who don't work in supply chain. And if you do work in supply chain, Buy this book for everybody else in the leadership team so they have more empathy for you. (laughs) Professor Yossi Sheffi, thank you for joining us for part two.
1: Thank you very much. See you.